Before we begin our Torah study this morning, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. This week's Torah portion is called Kitavo, and it speaks about the time when the children of Israel will arrive in the promised land and what they are to do. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse, um, verse one. If you have a Bible, would you, would you wave it at me like a paper Bible? I love, I love paper Bibles. If you have a digital Bible, wave that too. If you got both, you know, use two hands. You should always come prepared with a Bible so that you can uh, read together with us and follow along. But even more than that, you should come prepared by having read the portions. This is one of the reasons why we publish um, our, our Bible reading plan so that you can stay uh, in touch and you can stay in sync with us as we're reading from the Torah and from the Haftorah and also from the Brit HaKadoshah. We're reading now from Deuteronomy chapter 26. And it's, it's one verse that has some powerful ideas. It says, when you have come to the land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, when you've taken possession of it and you've settled there. I just wanna stop and focus on this because it describes one thing God will do and four things we're to do. So the one thing God says he will do is he will give you the land. He's telling the children of Israel, and this is one of the opening themes, I'm the one who's giving you the land, and when you get there, I want you to celebrate and to live for me in the land. Now it raises the question, does the Lord have the right to give anybody anything? Answer, yes. As the creator of everything, he has rights. The scripture says it this way, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all who dwell therein. So you know what that means? Everything on earth belongs to the Lord and all the people do too. We're all accountable to him. But we need to learn to live in right relationship with him. He promises Israel, I'm going to give you this land. And it's not up to Israel to decide what that land will be, it's up to the Lord. Because this is in fulfillment to what God had promised to Abraham. Do you remember what he said to Abraham? Lech lecha, you know what that means? You get yourself up. Okay, that's what you have to do. And you have to leave, you have to go out. But where do you go? You go to the land, the Lord says, I will show you. Not the land you've been dreaming of, not the land that you imagine for yourself, not necessarily the land that you would choose for yourself, the land the Lord has chosen for you. That's what God told Abraham. And as the children of Israel are walking in um, obedience to the covenant that God has made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their families, they are to do the same thing. They're to go to the land that the Lord is showing them. So the Lord promises this, I'm gonna give you this land. That's his part. And of course we have to recognize and embrace what he's doing. That's what 
the, the whole passage is about. But there are four things that it says um, that we are to do. When you have come to the land. Say that with me. When you have come to the land. You see, you've got to do the moving. When God said to Abraham, lech lecha, it was a call to action, not a call to passivity. Abraham had to get himself up. There are some people who live very passive lives and they only do exactly what they're told to do. They have no imagination or initiative. And so if God doesn't say it specifically, they don't do it. Not only that, some people are so passive that they say, well, if God wants me to do it, he'll make it happen. But the Lord said to Abraham, lech lecha, say that with me, lech lecha, which is a way of saying you get yourself up and get out. It's the way you want to talk to your kids when they're oversleeping. Lech lecha, get yourself up, and they have to learn how to wake themselves up in the same way you and I have to learn how to respond to the direction that the Lord gives. When you have come, when you have come to the land, which land, the land the Lord is giving you. So that second part is to, um, to recognize and embrace what the Lord is giving to you. Now, it's important to remember that when the Lord gives us new opportunities or he gives us new situations, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. How many can confirm that? Some people out of work, you know, they pray for a job. They say, Lord, you know, I'll do anything if you just give me a job. Then the Lord gives them a job and then they're praying, Lord, get me out of here. I didn't know I'd have this boss. I didn't know I'd have these responsibilities. I didn't know I'd have this Saurus. But sometimes the blessings come with challenge. Is that true? And that's why the scripture goes on and tells us the third thing we need to do, take possession of the land. We have to have responsibility. We have to take that responsibility to possess what has been given to us. We come into it, but we have to possess it. We have to assert to ourselves that we are responsible for what has been given to us. We have to function as stewards. We have to take care of what is given to us. And then the final thing, the fourth thing, is settle there. You know, that means get established. Sink your roots down. Thrive in that place. This is, is great instruction for community life. How do we live together? We have to live together because the Lord brings us together. And then we have to learn how to take possession of what God gives us and how to settle there. I remember when we moved here into this building, we had to learn to take possession of the building. You know what that meant? People who would open and close the building. Now, some of you come into the building, it's always unlocked, and you leave the building and you never think of what needs to be done. But not everybody thinks that way. Some people are actually responsible. They, they serve the congregation by getting the building ready, unlocking everything, turning on the lights, and then they close up the building and lock everything and set the alarms. How many of you do that? Can I see your hands? Over here, there are a few. I wanna just thank you for serving in this way. 
Because you're fulfilling, you're fulfilling what the scripture talks about as a principle, which is take possession. It's important to understand that things don't just happen. Possession requires responsibility. Responsibility requires faithfulness. Faithfulness requires commitment. And commitment requires people. And so all the good things that happen in a congregation, in a family, in an organization, happen because people join together and they take responsibility together. And they possess, and then the the last thing, they settle there. They settle, you know, some people blow in and they blow out. They, They come quickly and they leave just as quickly. There are some people who are like in love with the idea of the Jewish people and come into the congregation and it's like, oh, you know, it's the most perfect place uh, for a few weeks. Until they find out that um, there are Jews here. (laughs) And we are normal people, not to be idealized. And all the believers who are here of every nation, we're just people. And everybody has flaws and everybody has weaknesses. And after a few weeks, you know, someone frowns at you or they are impolite or they don't notice you or something. And there are people who come in full of idealization and then they leave disenchanted. And the reason is that they weren't rooted in reality. They weren't connecting to real people and the way people really are. They hadn't learned how to forgive and how to love and how to show commitment and so forth, how to be uh, patient and show forbearance with one another. A congregation isn't built on such people. It's built on people who can be normal with each other, can talk in a normal way, can be straight and can settle down and sink down their roots and then grow and produce good fruit from having grown. These are great principles. Let's move on to the next chapter, chapter 27 of Deuteronomy. We'll look at just two verses here that caught my attention. Next, Moses and the Kohanim, the high priests who are Levites or Leviim, spoke to all of Israel and this is what they said. Be quiet and listen. I love that. Say that with me. Be quiet and listen. Okay, now say that to yourself. Be quiet and listen. And then it goes on. Be quiet and listen, Israel. Today, you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore, you are to listen to what the Lord your God says and obey his commands and instructions which I am giving you today. In the Hebrew, it says you are to listen to the voice of the Lord. Be quiet and listen. That helps us understand we all need to be quiet. The voice of the Lord is not always a loud voice. The voice of the Lord does not always come as thunder and as an earthquake and with great force. Sometimes the voice of the Lord comes as it did to the prophet Elijah as the quiet voice of quietness, or in one of the good English translations, the still 
small voice. Still meaning like still waters. You can look at the waters out here on our lake and you see they're, they're still, even though there's a little bit of rippling there, they're still waters. The still small voice of the Lord. To listen to a voice like that requires that you quiet down. There are some people who talk only in a loud voice. I, I've noticed, because we have to travel for a variety of reasons, that there are people now on airplanes who, because they can use their cell phone when they're on the plane before it takes off and when it lands, they are talking in the loudest voice imaginable um, and disturbing everybody else and not thinking anything of it. But it's annoying. How many of you have experienced that? Or you're at a restaurant and you want a quiet atmosphere and there's like an annoyingly loud person. It's not that they're having a good time, they're just loud. That's their nature. And when that happens, we yearn for quietness. Have you ever been in that kind of environment that's disturbed and the person leaves? And then you go, ah, great. Great, because you get quietness. We need to be quiet, and we need to cultivate a listening ear. One of the ways that you cultivate a listening ear is you get quiet with the Lord, and instead of asking him things you want of him, you let him ask you things he wants of you. Some people have limited prayer vocabulary and topics, and their limits are, I guess what you could call gimme prayers. Do you know what I mean by that? They come to the Lord and they say, give me this, give me that. I want this, I want that. Wah, wah, wah. It's, it's like a nagging whine of a prayer. And if you've ever been around little kids who do that, you know how annoying it is. <laughs> how many can confirm it is annoying? Yeah, I mean, even if you love the kids, when they turn into that kind of, it's not begging, it's worse. It's, it's, it's something awful. And I think since we are children to the Lord, we can annoy him sometimes. Gimme, gimme, gimme. I want, I want, I want. Well, the Lord is looking for people, the scripture teaches us, who will listen to him and fellowship with him and take to heart what's on his agenda, what's important to him, what's good in his eyes. And people who will not just listen and tacitly agree, but people who will listen and take to heart. One of the definitions of passive aggression is people say yes, but they do no. They say they agree, but when it comes to action, they don't agree. And the Lord is looking for people who will put into practice the things that he's showing them. In fact, that's one of the themes of this Torah portion. The Lord is saying, I want you to listen to me, and then I want you to do what I say. Can you imagine? That's his attitude. That's what he wants from us. And people who find joy in it say, yes, Lord, and then develop a lifestyle that lists, 
listens and responds to the Lord and puts into practice and action what the Lord shows them. He's not looking for religious adherence. He's looking for people who will follow him. And when you read about the curses and you read about the blessings in the Torah portion this week, uh, you can understand it a lot of different ways, but I'll give you a simple way of understanding. It tells us this, that God is a God who has morality. And there is consequences. There are consequences for the actions that we take. And the Lord wants us to understand that there is punishment for evil and there's blessing for doing good. And it turns out human beings need to know this. Lawlessness creates violence and destruction. It does not bring out the best in people. People do better if they know that there is a God who's watching. Am I right? Have you ever caught yourself because you realize the Lord is aware? <laughs> I know I have. When you don't just try to get away with things, life changes. When you want to do what's pleasing to the Lord, things go better. And so this is telling us it's important to listen. That requires being quiet before the Lord. Listen and pay attention and then obey the voice of the Lord. And that also reveals to us a, a really sublime idea that each one of us has the capacity to hear the Spirit of God. Each of us has spiritual ears that are in parallel to our physical ears. In the same way that we can hear other people's voices, we can hear the voice of the Lord through our spiritual ears. The scriptures in many, many places say, the word of the Lord came to me saying this. And it's as if God speaks to people in such a way that it, it becomes understandable as words. I remember I was in Budapest, I've told this story, I'll try to make it short, but I was going to teach a class and I had a car for a few weeks at that time and I was looking for a, a parking place. It's hard to find parking places in Budapest. There aren't enough. And I, I saw this one spot at the corner of uh, the street and as I was about to pull in, I felt the Holy Spirit said, uh-uh. It was like a word, uh-uh. And my response was, uh-huh. <laughs> and I pulled in there and I parked and I tried to ignore the sign in Hungarian that said something like, no parking from here to the corner. And I was thinking, it's late in the evening, the parking attendants, you know, the parking police, you know how that is? I was justifying it. And so I went in and, and I taught a class. The class, ironically, was about repentance. <laughs> and when I came out, yeah, I had guests who I had to take in that car after teaching about repentance. When I, when I came out, I'm looking for the car. It's like, 
well, wait, wait, I think I parked right here, but my car isn't there. And that's when my uh uh-huh was reminded to me. And I remembered this simple word, it was a word, even though it was more onomatopoeia than anything else, it was uh uh-uh. And I remembered my response, "Uh uh-huh. And I thought it would be an advantage to me to park right there, it wasn't. It turned out that uh, my car got towed, yeah, to an impound lot. It took hours to go there and then to pay for it. And then amusingly, the penalty that I had to pay was I think like $70, something like that. And there was a book I wanted to buy that was really important to me, but it cost $70. And I thought, that's way too much money. And then I had to pay it for my car. (laughs) Well, through that whole process, a funny thing happened to me. When I saw that my car was gone, I started praising the Lord. I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Here's the reason why. At that moment, I realized I had heard the voice of the Lord. Now, I hadn't done what he said. (laughs) But I heard the voice. And it's like, hallelujah, Lord, I heard you. (laughs) 70 bucks, hours is what it cost me. (laughs) And I put into practice my lesson on repentance. It's not enough, though it's the starting point to hear, to recognize, but the second part is to put into practice what you hear. So you and I can go, yeah, 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 and we can become bobbleheads for God. And it doesn't really help us. What's What's necessary is we have to put into practice what we hear. Now, I want to close with a passage from the Brittachadashah, from the chapter we were reading from today, Luke chapter 23, a follow-up on that passage. It's an example of true discipleship that really caught my attention. And it starts in Luke chapter 23, verse 50, and it says, there was a man named Joseph who was a member of the Sanhedrin, it's important to know that the Sanhedrin was the, the ruling council. It was uh, quasi-governmental and religious as well. And Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he was a good and an upright man. But the Sanhedrin had taken a position about Yeshua. And they had taken a position against Yeshua. And it says that Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, a good and upright man, had not consented to that decision or that action. Or as Stern translates it, did not agree with the decision or the motivation. Or we could put it simply, he didn't agree with what they did or why they did it. You see, they had renounced Yeshua and treated him like a criminal and wanted to get rid of him 
But Joseph thought otherwise. It says, Joseph came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was looking for the kingdom of God. He was waiting. He was actively expecting the kingdom of God. And after the crucifixion, verse 52 jumps to what Joseph did next. You see, Joseph was there at the crucifixion. There, there were some disciples of Yeshua who couldn't bear the agony that Yeshua was going through, the torture, the humiliation, the shame, uh, the, the pain, the suffering. They had difficulty embracing the idea that Messiah must suffer. That was a controversial idea. In fact, almost none of the disciples agreed with it. Yeshua would teach about it uh, time and time again, and the disciples would constantly disagree with him. That, that he needed to suffer. You see, everyone was looking for a Messiah, and to this day, people are looking for a Messiah who will finish up everything real quick and will do one and only thing, and that is vanquish evil, and in this case, get rid of the Romans and return government back to the children of Israel alone. But Yeshua knew there was another side to Messiah. He needed to perform a work of redemption and he needed to become the living sacrifice. The temple system was coming to an end. Yeshua knew that. And there would be a time when everyone would say, what's our atoning sacrifice? And the disciples of Yeshua would be able to say, Yeshua's sacrifice was our atoning sacrifice. When he laid down his life, he became the perfect sacrifice for our sins. It's not the blood of bulls, of lambs, of goats, but it was the Lord laying down his life. But not everyone saw that. Not everyone agreed with it. Many of the followers of Yeshua were so disappointed in his crucifixion that they abandoned him and his call and they went back to the life that they had had before. They returned to the prior state of affairs with disappointment. But not Joseph of Arimathea. He's an interesting figure. He disagrees with the Sanhedrin, a body in which he is a voting member. But he doesn't do what's really popular in our day. He doesn't throw a hissy fit. He doesn't organize a protest. He stays faithful to the Lord even though he continues in the Sanhedrin. And he's a faithful witness inside of his own community and inside of that body that he has been appointed to. But he shows another sense of justice and how to deal with things that appear to be unjust and wrong. And rather than just protesting and rather than just being angry, which is so popular in our day because of our uh, polarization, in our country and all over the world, in fact. But he showed another sentiment, and I think it's because he heard from Yeshua some things that affected his understanding. And he embraced, I think in a way different than others, the, the death of Yeshua. He embraced it with courage, with personal courage. Do you remember when Yeshua said to Peter before the cock, crows three times, you will deny me. And Peter said, no way. 
And then it happened. Joseph was not a man who bragged at all. He didn't boast at all. He was a man of real authority. He was upright. He was good. He was a minority member, if you will, in the Sanhedrin. But he was nevertheless a man of stature and position. And this is what he did. He stayed at the cross. He remained there. And when Yeshua had died, he went to Pilate directly. Can you imagine being able to do that? He went to Pilate and he asked for Yeshua's body. And he said, I want to give him a burial. He took the body down. He wrapped it in linen cloth. He placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had been laid. It was preparation day and the Shabbat was about to begin. It was that important time before Passover. Other people had left but Joseph stayed, but even more than that, Joseph asserted loyalty. He acted in a loyal way. Rather than just protesting, he came forward to the ones who had executed him. Do you understand the risk of this? He'd been in a minority position in his ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and he publicly went to Pilate and said, give him to me. And I don't know how the dialogue went, but it's almost as if Pilate said, well, yeah, but you have to take him down, you get him. Can you imagine having such courage and such faith that you would go to the cross and take Yeshua down from the cross? He knew a secret. He knew the secret that Yeshua was not the victim of other people's power. He knew this secret that Yeshua was trying to convey to all of his disciples, and that is, no one's taking my life, I'm laying it down. Because Yeshua understood this was the secret to atoning sacrifice, him laying his life down. In fact, there was a moment when men of power were, were boasting about their power and Yeshua said something to this effect. If you could see what I can see, you would know that the power that's available to me is far greater than the power that you have right now. And I could just with a word shut everything down. But Yeshua wasn't there to do war against an occupying force. He was there to accomplish something far greater than that momentary victory. His goal was to become the atoning sacrifice for all mankind, for all humanity, for all time. And to that purpose, he had come down from heaven. God took on a human body and that human body was executed and tortured. Now you can't kill God by definition but his human body was killed. And in this way, Yeshua was accomplishing something that was hafuch, he overturned evil plans and brought good out of them. It's not that the thing itself was good, it's that he brought good out of it. Yeshua laid his life down and Joseph picked up his body and washed it 
wrapped it in linen, gave him a dignified and decent burial, put him in a tomb that he himself had paid for, that had never been used, a tomb of prominence and significance. And then when Yeshua rose from the dead, it must have been particularly rewarding for Joseph. But Matthew chapter 27 carries two details in it that Luke does not cover. Matthew 27 verse 57 says this, as that evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He's identified as a rich man. In Luke, he's identified as a member of the Sanhedrin, but here he's identified as a rich man. He's a man of means, and he's not corrupted by money. He's a good and an upright man. But then it goes on. He had himself become a disciple of Yeshua. In the Sanhedrin was Joseph of Arimathea, a man of means, a man of great dignity, of goodness and uprightness, who was a disciple of Yeshua, who argued unsuccessfully that Yeshua should not be rejected and uh, turned over to Pilate. But in losing the argument, he didn't go home and sulk. He didn't live a life of disappointment. He lived a life of faithfulness. And he stood by and he waited, and he took responsibility for the body. What a man, what a story, what a legacy. So important to the Lord was this man's decision that it's in the Bible, in not just one place, so that you and I can look and say, oh, that's what it means to be a disciple, to have that kind of faith and to have that kind of courage what a great example of a man who became quiet in the storm and who stood by faithfully and then demonstrated loyalty at great personal risk and cost. As we're preparing for the high holidays, we search ourselves and we examine ourselves and we say, Lord, what do, what do I really want to be? We allow the Lord to point out our flaws and we don't hide from them, we're honest with him. It's a time for humility and a time for, for honesty with the Lord and real sincerity. And though it may not seem related, I was remembering last night an event that happened with one of my grandsons who has his learner's permit. He was with us uh, a few weeks ago. He has his learner's permit, but he hadn't driven. But for the days we were together, he was saying, give me the keys, I wanna drive, I can drive, and, and I wouldn't do it. But I said to him, I wanna give you a lesson. Well, all week he was, um, he was saying, I, I can drive now, you know, I'll drive us, give me the keys. And he was acting with a lot of bravado. Well, I said to him, today I'm going to take you out and you're gonna drive. He took me in the other room and he said, Saba, I don't know anything about driving. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. And I said, don't worry. I've taught a lot of young boys how to do this. And he said, Whew. 
And so we went out driving. You know, this wasn't about sin or something like that. This was about that, that human tendency to, to boast and to have bravado rather than honesty and humility. And it was so refreshing when he said to me, Saba, I don't know anything. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and so the time we had together was wonderful time. You see, the Lord looks at us and there are things that we're boasting and have bravado about and he knows we don't know anything. And there are times when he just wants us to be honest. You know, we, we say this, but we really don't know what we're talking about. He's looking for people who will be honest with him. And as we come to the high holidays, remember this. Just be honest with the Lord. It'll go better with you. Tell him the truth. You don't have to, you don't have to put shine on anything with God. You can tell him the honest truth. You can tell him about how you feel, what you think, and you can ask him questions. But don't just tell him, listen to his response. And what he says to you, take to heart and put into action, and then you'll grow as a disciple. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us the capacity to hear you and to respond to you. Thank you that that great command that greatest command begins, listen, Israel. And we want to have spiritual ears that listen to you. We want to have spiritual eyes that see what you're doing. We want to have spiritual hearts that pay attention and understand. And we pray for life. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out that gift of repentance that leads to life for us. And that as we're getting ready for the holidays, that we would be humble before you and honest before you. We ask this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. We're gonna close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? And then we're gonna bless Aaron and Paula next door. Different Aaron. If you're by yourself, I'd invite you to move a little bit, shuffle a little bit so you're not standing alone. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Join us next door for this Oneg in honor of the Fleming family.